Good morning and welcome to Wanda Sticks, a Black Arts and Cultural Program of the African Sisters Media Network. And that was Zion Trinity singing opening prayer to the African deity, Eshu Legba, a deity that lets us know that we always have choices. We are never victims. And today we are really excited to be spending maybe an hour talking about black theater, particularly uh, black theater in New York City on Broadway and the Adolco Awards, which are going to be happening on Monday, November 29th. It's a free event, however donations are um, welcome. And we're going to be talking about what are the Adolco Awards, what is that organization that celebrates black uh, genius uh, on the stage. So we have our first guest joining us. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> uh, I was expecting quite a few people, so am I speaking to um, Bianca or Miss Vinny? Oh, perfect. <laughs> and um, you are Associate Director for Broadway's Chicken and Biscuit. You have to tell us. That's a nice side nice of chicken and biscuits. Mm, sounds yummy. <laughs> um, you're also an Adalco Award-winning actress. <clears throat> you're the director at Theater um, uh, theater Television Film Zoom. Um, you're also a SAG-AFTRA Af- Af- uh, actor. Um, you studied at the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art. You studied at Purchase College in SUNY. You went to University of North Carolina School of the Arts, and you're from Raleigh, North Carolina. Yeah. Yes, so tell us about <laughs> you. Tell us about your work and about the um, <clears throat> uh, the wonderful um, Adalco Awards that are coming up. I think that might be our brother Rome there. Let's see. <laughs> brother Rome, yes. It is our brother Rome. Okay, brother Rome is sort of like the curator. <laughs> Actor, director, producer, jazz vocalist, and also an Adalco uh, awardee. And, uh, and me, you probably me. already uh, know that um, the Bianca me, has already joined us. Uh, excuse hmm? me, that's a multi Adalco award winner. <laughs> oh, excuse me, multi. Like, what does that mean? How many? How many awards? <laughs> oh, I think I've gotten about six of them, yeah. Dang, two seriously? for di- two for directing, um, uh, directing. Don't explain by 
but um, Samuel Hobbs and um, mm-hmm. one for a show I did called Life um, Signs as lead actor and mm-hmm. for acting and one for directing Shango Dehima and mm-hmm. one for uh, the, uh, acting in in uh, my one man show Monk about Thelonious Monk and I did the light design for Shango also. And a board of mm. directors award I received. So um, I'm a Delco full and um, looking for more for it because I've been nominated for Monk again for the retrospective, this ret- retrospective of a of a Delco, which is coming up. And I'm in some great company with um, Roger Guinevere Smith and his Huey P. Newton story, um, um, uh, Ruben Sandiaga Hudson and his... Um, Lackawanna Blues, and Paul Beatty, and then, uh, was it um, uh, a few other great actors? And so I'm, I'm just so happy and blessed to be a part of this Delco um, Awards. As far as and and promoting it and getting the word out that people should really tune in and check it out because this one is uh, is going to be streamed live or. Uh, from the Dwyer Center, Cultural Center in Harlem, and that's going to be on Monday, this coming Monday, November 29th at 7.30. And for people who want to see this, uh, be a part of this whole magic that we're going to create that night, celebrating black theater excellence, they should go to www. New you no New York. Week. dot Adelco dot org. That's a u d e l c o dot org. Again, a u d e l c o dot org. That's Adelco. Adelco Business Development. Yeah, well, we have Ishmael Reed is joining us, um, and also Miss Vinny, um, and then we're going to come Burrell. back to uh, hmm? Viney. Viney. Oh, Viney sorry, Viney Brown. Sorry. So we're going to come back to you, um, Sister um, Bianca, because um, we interrupted you before Hi, you could Bianca. say anything. Hello. <laughs> so I'm going to let Can you. Can I just say um, something about Bianca? Bianca, I, I met at the National Black Theater Festival when she was just a teenager. And uh, and she has come to New York and and took us by storm from directing to fabulous acting and and now associate director of the 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 Broadway play uh, Chicken and Biscuits. Um, so uh, she's just phenomenal um, from a rising star to a star. Thank you so much, Rome. I appreciate that. <laughs> I appreciate you, darling. So so Rome, since you're you know, you started rolling along the, um, you know, introduction. So tell us about Ishmael, who has joined us, as well as Miss um, Viney. Well, Ishmael, what can I say? The adult, uh, uh, his play, the the haunting of Lin Manuel Miranda, uh, received three Adelco awards uh, two years ago at the Adelco Award ceremony. Um, for his two fabulous actors and his costume designer, and uh, he received a Pioneer Award uh, a couple of years before that from Adelco. So everyone that we have on board today have been affiliated with Adelco by receiving awards. And, and um, 
I've been fortunate over 30 years to be acquainted with Ishmael. In, excuse me? Excuse me, Ish? Yeah, hello? 30 years with Ishmael yeah. do, doing his plays here, uh, premiering his plays here in New York at the world-famous New Yorican Poets Cafe. And uh, he's coming back in December with a new play uh, directed by Carla Blank, his wife at the Theater for the New City, December 23rd through January 9th, and I'm the uh, production coordinator for that one, and uh, it's going to be fantastic. So we're still working together, creating great theater, and the new play is um, based on a relationship between Jean-Michel Basquiat and Andy Warhol, entitled the slave who loved caviar. <laughs> and then we have Viney Burroughs. What can I say about Viney Burroughs? So much. The legendary actors have been on Broadway back in the, the early 40s or 50s. And um, she's, um, she's a Delco Award winner and pioneer winner and a, a Lifetime Achievement Award winner, not only from Adelco, for so many other institutions and award ceremonies. And uh, this year, Viney is our co-host for the Adelco Awards, along with Carl Hancock Lux and Phyllis Yvonne Stickney. And uh, Viney this year has just turned 98 years old and is still Wow. Yes. So there you have it. <laughs> yes, and you told the yeah. world my age, and that's oh, okay. Oh, sorry, man, I'm sorry. <laughs> but we need to know. We need to know that you are you are a living legend, and you are fantastic. You know, and you know this um, this past summer we did a a reading of Miguel's P, Miguel Algarin's poems at the New York Poets Cafe outside celebrating his um his word his words. It was in the words of Miguel Algarin, the founder of the New York Composed Cafe. And and I curated it and hosted and and I brought Viney on to be the first one. Not because I wanted to get her in and out because of her age <laughs> but because I just wanted to get the thing started right. And Viney went on and did one of Miguel's poems about Alvin Ailey and blew everyone away. Everyone. It was when she after she finished, all the other performers knew they had to really step up their game because this lady is marvastic. <laughs> um, well, I love the introduction that you gave me, Rome. Thank you, Viney. So I, th I think um, everyone should just talk about their affiliation with Adelco and what it means to them because it means so much to me, and I'm so excited about having my peers and my peers and my my my, my princess on with us to talk about it. So go ahead, guys, you'll take over. Yeah, why don't we um, why don't we start with uh, with you, Miss um, uh, Viney? And before before you start, I just wanted to let our audience know. Um, that uh, ADALCO is an acronym for Audience Development Committee, Inc., and uh, it's an organization that acknowledges and honors black theater and its artists in New York City. 
It was established and incorporated in 1973 by Vivian Robinson, 1926 to 1996, to stimulate interest in and support of performing arts in black communities. So, um, Ms. Viney, why don't you why don't you kick it off with um, you know sort of Adolfo um, influences and the reason why Adolfo is so important, as well as you know sort of tell us more about yourself and and your work in theater and why theater. Well, I'm I'm delighted to talk with you and your audience and to talk about Odelco, which was founded by Vivian Robinson, once a, um, a um, theater critic for the Amsterdam News. That's exactly how I met her. I had been on Broadway with uh, one of my one-woman shows, and she reviewed it. And um, I was delighted with her review, and that's how we met. And from that beginning, of course, she started um, Odelco because she was a lover of theater, not only someone who supported it, but someone who loved theater, loved what black people were doing with theater, not only as actors, but as designers, set designers, playwrights. Um, She was, how can I really convey to your audience her love and passion for theater and for what black people were doing in theater and wanting to support that and and develop it. And that's what she did, of course, with Odelco, um, supporting and, and, um, oh dear, supporting it and in every way that she could. And this, of course, is the 49th performance of uh, uh, annual Odelco Awards, and I'm delighted to be one of the presenters that that day. But since yeah. we have, Miss um, 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 uh, Vani, um, someone needs to um, mute their phone. <laughs> okay, all right, because we didn't want you to be confused yeah, with that. That's so that interesting in the in the theater now. Um, uh, I was, I saw the play. Uh, uh, Lackawanna Blues with Ruben Sandiago Hudson, and mm-hmm. when someone the, the cell phone would go off, he would stop and wait till they got that right, and con- then continue his performance. It was it's mm-hmm. just a, the magic of theater. You know, people used to just keep going on through the um, the <laughs> cell phone ringing, but you know, sometimes you got to put people in check, and um, and, he, and he did that many t- a couple of times during his performance. So mm-hmm. I just mm-hmm. wanted to interject that. And, and, <laughs> but, but these things happen. We're, you know, we're, we're lies. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, um, Ms. Barrows, um, what what brings you to theater and to have such a, um esteemed and long um, uh, performance history as an actor, storyteller, and activist? Um, 6,000 performances on and off Broadway, on television, radio, and in films. That's that's um, that, that's amazing. Um, you know, uh, to colleges, universities, women's groups, peace and human rights organizations on four continents. Like, okay. Hello, Viney. Hello, have I lost I contact? Oh, yes, no, I'm we, 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 we didn't hear you. 
Now we we oh, hearing you now. I, I guess she just came back or something. Oh. Hello. Hello. I'm yeah. still on. Yeah, okay. She just well, asked talk the, to us. The question, you know, I, I think Viney was off and came back on. That's why um, she didn't oh. hear your question. Okay. Oh, so the question was, um, did you hear my question? Have I lost contact? Are Can you, you hear us? Yes, I'm. I'm here. Yeah, we're we're not hearing you speak. Oh, I can hear speak. No, no, I'm. Mean, I can hear you. Continuing. Okay. So were I you going to tell us more having some about kind of difficulty? Were you going to tell us more about about your acting career and what brings you to the stage? Oh, yes. Rome has told you that I just celebrated my birthday, uh, 98 years old, and uh, I've been working in theater or on radio since I was 10 years old. Started with um, WOR and WNYCBC with um, CBS and Let's Pretend, so that I started my career officially on Broadway with with um, Helen Hayes in Mysteria Trees, and I went on from that to seven other Broadway shows. But after a while, I was frustrated by the limitations on actors of color, and I decided to produce a, and direct my own one-woman show, and that happened, and I got wonderful reviews from all of the New York critics and then decided that I would uh, fashion a career as a monologist, as someone who did one-woman shows, and I went on to give more than 6,000 performances in colleges uh, and universities, not only in the United States, but also on four continents. And I've been fortunate, I think, uh, in in making a career and establishing a living doing one-woman shows. That's the right. the long, the yeah. short version of it. <laughs> right. Um, so. Um did you write these one-woman shows? Um, and maybe yes, you tell I, us I, I, I assembled the one-woman shows. They are collages. Some of them are pieces that I've written originally. Others are excerpts from from writers and playwrights and poets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's been a very satisfying experience. And in the process of doing that, I've learned so much about... Um, about life and about how people live, and particularly since I'm interested in women's advancement and became interested in the beginning with the uh, situation of the South Africans and apartheid. You know, Viney performed in uh, the production of Shango de Ima that we did at theater for, at the 
New Eureka Poets Cafe. I directed it. And this is the play that was nominated for 11 Adelco Awards. And and it won all 11 awards that, that uh, mm. evening at the Apollo Theater. Viney, could you talk about that evening and how, how it felt for you? Well, it was amazing. It was an honor, an overwhelming honor, um, to be recognized in the show put together by a directed by you, but I think put together by Susan Sherman, Shango yes, da, yes, Daima. Yes, yes. And I played the role of Obatala. And people still, and this is true, people still meet me on the street sometimes and say, oh, you're Obatala. That was the character that I played. <laughs> and I, I'm just really overwhelmed, overwhelmed with, with, with delight. That was a fantastic <laughs> night. That night, it was the Apollo Theater was packed, and all the folks came out to celebrate Black Theater excellence. And we were, we were at on top of our game. So it was, it was just to have Viney there to be uh, to win that Adelco Award for Lead Actress. It just meant so much, and so mm. she's so deserving. Was so deserving of it for her work. Right. Yeah. Cool. I think one um, of the things that we must, you know, say about Odelco is the fact that it has brought recognition to so many uh, luminaries, really, in in theater, black luminaries, whether it's on on stage as an actor or as a playwright um, or as a set designer, that it has recognized and brought our gifted, promising um, black stars and luminaries to the forefront. And because it has done that, it it has also supported black theater, given not only the black community, but the wider community, uh, a a sense of uh, what we carry and what we do as uh, uh, functioning in the theater. You know, some of the uh, Bianca could uh, talk yeah. about some of the um, the, the legendary uh, folks who have won Adelco's over the years. Could you say expound upon that? Well, um, of course, we just lost Ed Bullens. Yes, yes. And he has yeah. been recognized with the, with Adelco as a playwright several times. That's right. It was out there in Oakland uh, at the um, Black Theater Rep and uh, uh, directed quite a few plays there. One of them was Savage Wilds by Ishmael Reed, and uh, so you know, and I ended up directing the the New York premiere. That's the first works that I did by Ishmael at the New York Poets Cafe, and uh, he was a close, very close friend to Woody King, and Woody King. Produced many of his plays at the New Federal Theater, and uh, that that leads into Woody King, who's being art given a very special honor at the Adelco Awards this year. To uh, 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 Bianca, yes, I'm here. You know some of those plays that were uh, some of the people who were winners of Adelco Awards that are, um, are very famous now. Um, so I know people that have come through the New Federal Theater, Woody King Jr.'s Theater, 
Um, and Woody is just uh, retired this year from 50 years of theater and um, as a theater maker and uh, critic and someone who's written anthologies about uh, black theater. Um, the people that have come through his theater I could tell you about. I don't know um, how extremely versed I am on the exact Adelco Award winners that are all famous, but definitely we know that Felicia Rashad and Samuel L. Jackson and Denzel Washington um, have all come through um, New Federal and have been nominated for Adelco. Um, right. uh, nominated and, and won Adelco. That's right. So Denzel um, won the Adelco for When the Chickens Come Home to Roost. He won lead okay. actor yeah, for the Adelco Award for that show. And uh, Felicia for Zora. And both of those plays were written by uh, Lawrence Holder, who was receiving mm-hmm. a, a Pioneer Award at the Adelco this year. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, well, we have, you know, uh, the good, usual, amazing artists such as Ruben Santiago Hudson, mm-hmm. um, also always um, showing up and representing the community. George C. Wolf has won several times. Yeah. Um, and we have other, um, and, I'll, and I'll kind of pull myself in this, um, children of people who've come to the, through the theater. So my father is Herman Laverne Jones. and. He was Woody's right hand um, during the 80s and 90s when uh, Woody was extremely thriving at New Federal Theater. And so I've been nominated and won awards for uh, the for directing and nominated for acting. And my father's also won um, for directing. And the people that have come through, also Duke Ellington's daughter, I believe Mercedes, and um, a, a lot and, and of... Shangi, and Tuzaki Shangi also, yeah. Yeah. Yes, all of well, the list you know, is long um, and impressive, and a tribute yes. to its founder, Vivian Robinson, the founder of the Odelco Awards. So true. We'd like to give a shout out to Vivian. These ladies are very special to to the community, the theater community. Of course, Vivian Robinson and the late great, um, uh, the late great. Um, um, oh, how, how can I forget my girl's name? I'm just so excited, yeah. Um, Grace L. Jones. Oh, yes. Yes, Grace L. Jones. She was uh, a supporter of theater, black theater. The, president, the last president of producer. Yes, she, um, she, she had trailblazed for, I think it's about 13 years with Adelco and um, to her last days, and she just gave so much of her life, her heart, her soul to promoting black theater and, and celebrating us. So um, it's interesting because every year for the past six years, I would do a banana pudding jazz evening at the New York Weekend Poets Cafe and celebrate Adelco, but definitely celebrate Grace L. Jones for her diligence and work that she did for Adelco for all those years. And then there's Mary B. Davis. Everyone knows Mary B. Davis, who is a staunch supporter of Adelco, and she's being honored this year with a very special award, too. Um, so, you know, Adelco has meant so much to the black theater community. And um, one year, finally, <laughs> my good friend Ishmael Reed was, was was called up and said, well, we're going to give you a Pioneer Award. 
And Ishmael, what what did that feel like? Well, uh, I was very gratified to get it. Uh, I'm glad to be on with Viney, who's uh, the dean of black theater, and uh, performed in Hubba City, our play at uh, the New Yorican. And in our plays, we're able to say, or we're able to counter the myths and stereotypes that are promoted by the media. For example, uh, there are few shows on today, currently, where the drug crisis is blamed on black teenagers. That, that began with The Wire, this terrible piece propaganda. Today we find out that uh, some of the big drugstore chains have been uh, involved in uh, peddling opioids. So in that play, Hubble City, we were able to indict uh, the real estate interests, the banks, who laundered the drug money, and all the other interests that benefit from um, drug sales. So, Viney, uh, happy birthday, and uh, thank keep doing you. Your great work. Keep doing thank your you. great work. Um, you know, it, it took them until Adrian Kennedy was 90 years old to recognize her. She's got a play coming up on Broadway. Oh, so, yeah, the Ohio State Murders. I wrote a long mm. review of that uh, play in the Tulane Drama Review. Now, Adelco, um, they really have high standards, so I was very privileged to get one because uh, an example of the high standards, I remember attending an Adelco award ceremony, and a director who was the most famous director in the country at that time, came to get an award. I was the only one who recognized him. <laughs> and then he lost. <laughs> he lost. Yeah. Anyway, uh, that's what, that, that's an example of uh, Adelco where the judges know whether you're shucking a job. So all these other awards are rigged. I don't know if you saw that uh, chauvinistic display the other night, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You know, I mean, I think young young um, people, this uh, you know, the millennial generation believe that Elvis Presley invented rock and roll because of his propaganda. So Adelka Award uh, recognizes people who tell their stories. Other people tell our stories. George Bernard Shaw said, "If uh, you let other people tell your stories, they will degrade and vulgarize you." And that's that's uh, the state of the arts when it comes to black performance, literature, theater. Today, other people tell our stories, but Adelco, uh, you know, recognizes people who tell stories from their own, their point of view. Mm, yeah. Ishmael, what, uh, do you want to say something about, about Ed Bullens? Um, I mean, he was a real uh, stone in the foundation of the black arts movement, particularly um, in the West Coast. Well, I got a big piece coming out. Wanda, uh, nice uh, hearing from you. I got a big piece coming out in Alta Magazine, the California Magazine that's published by Willie Hurst, William Hurst III, about the Black Repertory Theater and their struggles. Uh, they were run out of Mississippi in the 1940s for bringing black theater to uh, Vicksburg, Mississippi. Uh, the Klan fired upon their home, and, and the third uh, incident, uh, incident uh, Mona uh, Scott uh, Vaughn, uh, excuse me, Mona Vaughn Scott, was an infant. She was nearly killed. And so they came to Berkeley, and they've had problems since then. Uh, they're 36 years old. 
or even before that, they had a storefront, but the city of Berkeley built them a theater, and they've been harassing them ever since for 36 years. Well, they are, they grovel before the the Berkeley Rep, Rep Theater. So Ed Bullens worked uh, there at the uh, Black Repertory Theater and uh, did my play, Savage Wilds, and did another play called, uh, the other play, no, he didn't do Hubble City, but he he did two plays of mine. Then he established Did he do Mother Hubble? Hubble? No, he didn't do Mother then, then he established the Volumes uh, Memorial Theater in the Skid Row section of Oakland. Uh, he, he had a building, he rented it, and uh, we did plays there. Now, I'm just completing an article where I talk about an incident where a white student came to my class and wrote on the blackboard, uh, dinner at 530 uh, with Professor Reed, bring your own watermelon. Oh, oh no! Mm. So I told him I would. I told him that I would either report him to the dean where he'd be expelled, or I would turn him over to the black ref and Ed Bullins. <laughs> oh, <laughs> he worked with Ed Bullins for ten weeks, and uh, when I went to see the play, I thought he was just going to be a member of the crew. Ed Bullins had given him a role in the play, so I don't know where uh. that kid is now, but I think he got a very valuable lesson. Mm. But Ed Bullins was uh, did a great deal out here in California to uh, you know promote black theater. But anyway, the Adelco, I wish you all you guys a lot of luck. And uh, that was one of the high points of my career when I got that Pioneer Award, a series mm. of gold watches that I'm getting. You know, I'm doing my gold watch tour. But anyway, <laughs> seriously, <laughs> seriously, uh, I, I wish you guys all the luck. My play, oh, one more you. thing, my play, my my play. The Slave Who Loved Caviar, which is going to be directed by Carla Blank, who directed my play in China, a mother Hubbard in China, and uh, Rome is a production coordinator. That'll be opening on December 23rd at the Theater for the New City, and it takes a different point of view than all the pro-Warhol, where he's sort of like a god in New York, uh, point of view that... Uh, Jean Mas- uh, Michel Masquet was uh, his mascot. It was the other way around. And uh, I don't know if anybody is acquainted with the racial history of cocaine. They used to give cocaine to the slaves to increase production. And that's exactly what happened to this kid. And they murdered him. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Uh, this play takes on, I, I did the uh, the first reading of it at the New Eurekan Poets Cafe, and this play takes on, Ishmael has written another masterpiece, and, and he's un- unveiled the, uh, the the sheets in that respect of, of the of these people who took take advantage and destroy, try to destroy our way of life and our stories also. So um, it's a must-see play opening December 23rd through January 9th at Theater for the New City, uh, 10th Street and 1st Avenue in, in Low East Side of Manhattan. You know, I know we have a California audience, and we got because we're streaming, we're all over the world. We just want people to know that you have the opportunity to tune into the Adelco Awards live, stream live, just by going to w. Uh, you can get the information on www.adelco.org. That's a u d e l c o dot org. Again.
Again, that's mm-hmm. A U D E L C O dot org. And you know, the Delco Awards like the Tony Awards, everybody wants to be there, uh, in the house for it or tune into it. Tune into the Adelco Award. It's our Tony Awards of Black Theater, and um, it's a superb ceremony that's going to be held. And it's, we're celebrating 49 years of Black Theater excellence. It can't get no better than that. When Black people come together and and show out and 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 the plays that are being. Uh, not just nominated, but the names of the plays, the names of the playwrights and the, the production companies, all these are coming to the, the front, uh, front line as people take in this, that evening that's going to take place on Monday, uh, November 29th at 7.30. So you all have the opportunity to tune in and catch. We're, we're talking about it and what it means to us, but you got have the opportunity to take a, a trip down memory lane with us that particular night for the Adelco Awards, a retrospective mm. of great works. Yeah. I um, uh, wanted to know if, because um, you mentioned to me, Rome, that uh, this this year on Broadway, it's an unprecedented number of, of plays um, by and about, you know, people of African descent. And and I wanted to know if um, if maybe you know we can go around um, maybe we can start with you, um, uh, uh, Miss Jones, because you haven't had a chance to talk much. <laughs> um, just about what what that means, you know, having you know black stories be sort of like the flavor um, uh, presently, and and how long is that going to last, and is that how important is that, um, you know, given you know sort of what it's been like. For people of African descent, these past, you know, two years through a pandemic, as as verdicts sort of sit, um, uh, you know, in jury boxes, not yet, you know, um, announced, and other verdicts announced that sort of just put, you know, blackness in perspective here in this nation, and how so little has changed. Are you still with us, Miss Jones? Oh, I think she's gone. Well, you know, there's um, on Broadway now. Um, there's so many great plays. I, I said it was seven, and and someone told me now there's going to be eight plays that that that'll be on Broadway in the near future, uh, very near future. So um, it's. It's like a first, a first that we've had so many black, not only just, we're talking about musicals, we're talking about dramatic plays uh, by some wonderful authors on on Broadway right now. Uh, I was privileged to see Lackawanna Blues written, directed, and starring Ruben Santiago Hudson. I saw that on Broadway, and I came out of the theater and said to myself, well, okay, Ruben is the king of Broadway. You know, he's when you take on as a one man to take on all these titles and put yourself on stage in front of an audience of thousands for it closed uh, last week but um 
it had a wonderful run for about two months on Broadway. So um, he's to be heralded as the king for me of black uh, black Broadway. Um, mm-hmm. Then you had <clears throat> you had um, uh, um, the play, Lynn Nottage's play Clyde's, which just opened on Broadway, and uh, it stars none other than my good friend uh, brother Ron Cephas Jones, who won two Emmy awards uh, uh, for his portrayal uh, in the the hit TV series, This Is Us. I was nominated for three. He won two Emmy Awards. But prior to that, Ron had won his first adult, very first adult award in the play Don't Explain, where he played the character of jazz trumpeter Lee Morgan, which I directed at the New York and Poets Cafe, a play which was nominated for seven adult awards. And we won all seven awards, including production of the year. And then there's uh, <clears throat> Alice Childress' play that's on Broadway. What's the title, Ishmael? Trouble in Mind. Trouble in, yes, Trouble in Mind with um, LaChance and, 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 and um, Chuck Cooper. Both of these are Delco Award-winning actors also. And uh, LaChance won the uh, uh, lead actress in Color Purple that was on Broadway, the musical. Uh, So, you know, we're so very proud that this is happening at this time for us. And when I look at it, I think, I can't quote it exactly, but it's almost everyone that's been in in all of these seven, almost everyone that's been in all seven plays have, have come through a Delco and have either won or been nominated for a Delco Awards at one point. Somebody from those casts or the crew or something to that effect. So we're making a, a, a major statement, and when I look at it, I see those plays. All those plays could could have been nominated for Delco Awards if they were off-Broadway, but they're on-Broadway now. I don't, th- I don't think we reached the promised land yet. Mm-hmm. I don't think we reach the promised land yet on Broadway. The thing about our plays is it's our own money. So we get a say so in the final cut. And Alice Childress complained that they modified her play. They did the same thing to August Wilson in order to reach the 71% of people who buy tickets. Mm. So uh, we have an anthology called Bigotry on Broadway. Yeah. Some of the plays that uh, the critics children's critics are praised are condemned by some of the contributors to our anthology. For example, Native Americans really don't dig Oklahoma. Okay? Puerto Rican Americans really don't dig West Side Story. All right? Uh, Asian Americans don't dig uh, Miss Saigon or the Flower Drum Slot. So uh, now that we have critics from other points of view and from other backgrounds, maybe we'll get a reading of Broadway uh, which needs a, uh, which needs like a truth and reconciliation committee or something like that. Maybe Odell can set one up. But I'm very suspicious of Broadway. I thought it was a shame and a disgrace what they did to Martin Luther King with that mountaintop thing. Mm-hmm. You know, oh. I mean, not only not only did they insult him, but they had the opening to coincide with the unveiling of his monument in Washington. And one of the producers was a woman 
uh, who was sued by Woody, uh, uh, Woody Allen because uh, she stole his money, his agent. They settled in court. So uh, I would have to, I would have to uh, just wait and see if things have changed since Birth of a Nation or Uncle Tom's Cabin was on Broadway. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. You know, no one, no one has mentioned um, uh, Cicely Tyson, and I was wondering, uh, was she um, an awardee? Uh, <clears throat> I don't believe so. I'm, I'm not too sure. I remember um, she, her being talked about for a special award that was um, actually two years, a year before she had passed. Because she mm-hmm. and she just she did a play on Broadway also um, with James Earl Jones. Was, um, but, um, gin game, I think. Gin game, yeah, that's what that's what it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But our yeah. dear Viney Bowes has been on Broadway and and has won Adelco Awards and uh, we love you so much, Viney. Um, yeah. And, for, and for, I love what Adelco has done for the black community. I want to give a shout-out to them. And recognition and excellence. Yes. Excellence. I want to give a shout-out to the president of Adelco, who, the now president of Adelco, uh, who's holding it down and, and doing a wonderful job at it. Uh, uh, Jeffries, Miss um, uh, Jeffries, uh, she is uh, amazing when she came up with this this idea to do this retrospective because all the Broadway, as you know, all the Broadway shows were closed down for uh, because of the pandemic, and there were no shows to be nominated. And uh, we decided, to, okay, well let's go, let's t- take a trip back down memory lane and 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 revisit the shows that were the best of uh, of each theater company. Uh, in their their runs of, of theater pieces, and uh, and it's, it's miraculous what came up because there's a lot of like I said memory lane because we go back, I, you know, the New Yorker Poets Cafe is, is has his own nominations of his own plays, so we have to nominate our own plays, and one of them, some of the plays that came out of the New Yorker were that's been nominated is The Circle Unbroken is a Hard Bop by Seiko Sundiata. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Samuel Hobbs Don't Explain about Lee Morgan with uh, Kim Weston Moran, uh, Randy Weston's daughter, and um, and Ron Cephas Jones taking the lead. The Election Machine Warehouse and Jackpot Melting by Mary Baraka. My production of uh, adaptation of Julius Caesar, Shakespeare's Julius Caesar set in Africa. Uh, um, Wesley Brown's Life During Wartime, uh, The New New Yorker Nights by Miguel Pinero, directed by Miguel Algarin back in the the early uh, 70s, 70s, yeah. Um, And then Shango de Ima, again, the play that was nominated for 11 Adelco Awards by Pepe Carrillo, and um, again, adapted by Susan Sherman which was nominated for 11 Adelco Awards and won all 11 awards. And um, so, you know, we're, so it's just a good feeling to, you know, be to go back and revisit these, these plays and the names of the plays. And I'm just talking about my theater 
in the Eureka Post Cafe, but then you have Woody King's Theater, and you have the new, uh, which is the new Federal Theater, and all the wonderful plays they created, and then you have um, uh, the Black Spectrum Theater, Carl Clay's Theater, who's been around for 50 years creating great theater, and the plays that he produced there, and uh, also the, uh, the, um, the New Heritage Theater, up in Harlem's uh, Boza Rivers Company, and of course the National Black Theater uh, that's up there in Harlem also. So it's, it's going to be a, a magnificent evening, as Larry Leon Hamlin from the National Black Theater Festival would, would say, a fantastic evening. And I wish that uh, yeah, our girl uh, Bianca was still with us because I, I wanted her to talk about the show that she was associate producer, associate director of um, on Broadway Chicken and Chicken and Biscuits uh, that's closing this weekend uh, on the 28th, and it had a wonderful run, be a short-lived run, but a wonderful run, and um, that's critically uh, reviewed by some wonderful people. So, um, you know, it's, I know you say you know things are really not set and done yet for us in black theater on Broadway, but we're making some crossroads for some reason, some reason somebody is recognizing that why, we why need to go. Why, why, why should Broadway be a standard? It is not. I, I mean, never thought no, it was. No, I mean, no, I'm just saying that now. No. Everybody wants to get into Hollywood with all the uh, reduction in the cost of making a movie. You can make it on your computer. People That's still right. begging Hollywood to do stuff. You know, I just, I just don't, I don't get it. Listen, I want an Ishmael Reed play to be on Broadway. I want an Ishmael yeah. Reed play to be made out of a film. I want an Ishmael Reed play to be made out of a film because of the wonder. I mean, why not? Well, let him respond. What did you say, Ishmael? I didn't hear you. Go ahead. Uh, my last correspondence with uh, Amiri, mm. uh, yeah. and we were in correspondence until, until he died, I pointed out the fact that Eve Ensler had a better chance of getting a play done at the Apollo Theater than Ed Bullen's Aisha Rockman. Remember her? Remember Aisha? Yes, yes. A mm. number of yeah. uh, black playwrights. And he said bullseye. That was his one-word comment. But I'm really well, I never had a play on Broadway for obvious reasons. It's all about mm-hmm. politics. It's all about politics. I mean, they, they dismiss him as a communist. They uh, said his career ended with Dutchman when he wrote a lot of plays after that. You know, you know, Rome, you directed some of them. That's right. I directed so five, after, five Until five the political situation play. changes, we're, we're going to get the same old stereotypical type plays uh, that we've had for 100 years, appealing to uh, people who pay for the tickets. The, the crowd that Lloyd Richards called the credit card crowd, the plastic card crowd. <laughs> hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was wondering um, in closing if um, if you all could, um, those you know, the three of you who are left, could talk about um, some of the younger writers that black writers that are coming up that you know whose work people should look out for. Well, this is this is the golden age of uh, black writing, mm. and uh, we're doing an anthology uh, to commemorate the passing of Steve Cannon, mm. 
and uh, we were able to get a lot of writers in that one. And there's a, another anthology that we're producing, which is a tribute to Miguel Agarini. So I think uh, for the critics who are based in the East, especially that Anglo, Anglophile New York uh, Times book review, things are very big beyond the Rockies. I mean, there's nothing out here but rattlesnakes and surfboards, according to those people. But we have a big renaissance going out here on the West Coast. So I think this, there's probably more terrific writers than ever before in history. Yeah. Who's, um, could you tell well, us who I, Steve Cannon is? Well, Steve Cannon uh, organized uh, Tribes, the Gathering of the Tribes, which produced a magazine called Tribes. He also had an art gallery. His patron was David Hammonds, the uh, great uh, painter, artist. Mm. And uh, he died last year. And since then, uh, younger people have taken over the uh, tribe's organization, which is located in New York downtown. And uh, they've put out the magazine still. It's called Tribes. You can get it on online. And so uh, Margaret Troop uh, and I organized an anthology to commemorate uh, his passing. And so we have everybody but, uh, you know, some emerging writers to uh, Pulitzer Prize winners and U.S. Poet Laureates in that anthology. Oh, nice. Okay, let the look of that. Well, there's, there's a, a young lady that I directed one of uh, one of her plays uh, last year, uh, two years ago, and um, her name is Helena D. Lewis, Dr. Helena D. Lewis. And uh, it was, you know, she's a, one of the writers that's coming up that has won a Delco Awards and a Delco Award for her, her play, Diary of a, of a Mad Social Worker. And um, she's coming up. She's one of the good writers. And then there's this writer uh, that's got a play coming out now on Broadway. Uh, that, um, well, what's her name? Dominique Mosso. And the play is Skeleton Crew, and it's directed by... Oh, uh, yeah, that's a good... Yeah, we saw that out here. Mm-hmm. You saw it out there? Well, it's coming to Broadway yeah. at now, and uh, it's going to star Felicia Rashad, and it's going um, to... It's directed by Ruben Santiago Hudson, and that's going to be... She, Dominique, is one of our young writers that's really taken... Taking things on by storm, she wrote the um, the, um, the the play the temptation about the temptations that was on Broadway that's still on Broadway mm-hmm. now, and um, a few good uh, great other plays uh, based around Detroit and and life there. So um, watch out for her if you have if you don't know you will know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Cool, cool. Yeah. Well, maybe you could give. Um Give the information again about about Monday, and this is seven o'clock Eastern time. Seven thirty Eastern time, the forty okay. ninth Adelco uh, Award, a retrospective, uh, co-hosted by Viney Burroughs, Carl Hancock Rux, and Phyllis Yvonne Stickney, uh, at taking place at the Dwyer Theater and live stream from the Dwyer Theater in Harlem, which happens to be Ruby Davis and Ozzie 
Ruby D and Ozzy Davis way um, uh, on 123rd Street in in in, in Harlem. So it's so apropos to do it there. However, it's going to be streamed throughout the world for people. So if you're interested, go to www. Adelco.org. That's A-U-D-E-L-C-O.org. Again, A-U-D-E-L-C-O.org. And um, be in the house because it's going to be a fantastic time, a ride for all of us. And I'm so looking forward to it. Excellent, excellent. Well, super. Well, look forward to Monday, and thank you so much, um, Rome, for telling me about this so we could let our audience know so they don't miss this wonderful 49th uh, anniversary of this esteemed awards for black theater. Um, Yeah, thank you all so much. Any closing remarks, um, Ms. Viney or Mr. Reed? Yes. Yeah, well, Rome is one of the great directors. Uh, and he's somebody who never sold out. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. And I'm mm. always promoting, uh, that's why I'm the coordinator for your production at Theater in the New City. So people, uh, December 23rd through January 9th, uh, Ishmael reads The Slave Who Loved Caviar, directed by Carla Blank. Go, you get your tickets and, and and check that out. Go call, call the box office two one two two five four one one zero nine, or just go online and check out uh, theater for the new city dot uh, org also. But um, again, and we, have two, about, and we have two adult we have two adult award winners in the play. That's right in the play, Robert Turner and uh, Raj Fox, who won. Adelco Awards for your last piece, uh, The Hunting of Lynn Manuel Miranda, a play that's still hunting Lynn. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Wanda, thank you so much. Your last weekend in the Island Times and the Guardian. Yeah, okay. Take care, Wanda. Thank you so very much. You too. Congratulations to everyone. Right. Bye bye. See you Monday. Bye. Great. Excellent. Well, um, we are joined by our wonderful guests um, from San Francisco Mime Truth to talk about seeing Red, uh, a real original take on A Christmas Carol, as only the San Francisco Mime Truth can do. And, uh, yeah, I think everyone is in the studio now. Um we have uh, Michael Jean Sullivan, we have Mike uh, McShane, and we have Miss Felina Brown. Good morning. How are you all doing? Great. Thanks, Wanda. Good, <laughs> good morning, Wanda. Oh, wow. Good morning. Good morning. Gosh. Hey, Michael. Hey. <laughs> um, good to talk to you. Well. Again. <laughs> Good to talk to you too. You're like one of my favorite guests, and Valina, you were just outstanding uh, in the uh, SF Playhouse production, uh, The Great Con. You know, written by Thank you, uh, Michael Jean Sullivan. That was like, that was such a great 
play. Oh, my goodness. It was so good. I just loved all of the twists and turns. And as only, you know, um, playwrights like you all could do, um, and seeing red is one of those, like, that you even have a curriculum <laughs> that that you're, you know, that March was like, yeah, we need curriculum. This is not your typical <laughs> Christmas carol by a long shot, like, even though it's not super long to, to listen to as a radio play, it's like, oh, my goodness, all the layers. So maybe, um, oh, maybe we, yeah, maybe we can start with, what is Seeing Red about, and when, how do people listen to it, and yeah, and you can talk about your roles in the work while I look up your your bios. <laughs> <laughs> well, Seeing Red, uh, yeah, sorry, uh, A Red Carol, A Red Carol. Uh, oh, is, right, sorry, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, a different version, a different adaptation of a Christmas carol. People have gotten kind of used to seeing a Christmas carol and singing this happy, joyous story about Christmas and about this one guy who's a jerk. That, that's, you know, Ebenezer Scrooge is this one jerky guy, and everybody else in the world is kind of cool and nice and, and, and charitable. Uh, and if only Scrooge would change. And all three of us, interestingly, uh, Mike McShane, Valina, and I, have all done uh, stage versions of the traditionally done A Christmas Carol, actually all at ACT. Um, all at ACT, yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. on record as uh, the world's largest Charles Dickens. <laughs> <laughs> and so we had all, we'd all done the show over the years and stuff, but one of the things that always bugged me was that it was always seen as the story of redemption of this one guy. And I wanted to write a, a version that was from the worker's perspective. From, from Cratchit's perspective, from the perspective of everyone else in the story, and also to try to put the story in perspective for the audience, to say, what was Christmas like uh, in Dickensian times? It wasn't this joyous time. It was just another holiday, really. Uh, and in a country, England at the time, that saw poor people as basically poor, the destitute, the homeless, the workers – as a completely other species, they were barely human to the, to the upper class, to the aristocracy, to the wealthy. The poor's lives, they didn't matter at all. Um, the audiences don't get that. They don't understand that we live in a post-Dickensian world. We live in a world that, where people do think sometimes about helping other people, whereas in Dickens' time, it was virtually against the law. Poor people were sent to the poorhouse. They were sent to the workhouse. They'd go to debtor's prison. Uh, they were, you know, people died uh, in, the, in the snows in London in Christmas. One out of every ten funerals was from some poor destitute child that had died. It is a much more serious story about changing the world. And Dickens was trying to change the world with Christmas Carol. It is an activist story. And all of the teeth have been pulled from it by these big corporate theaters who do it. They just see it as a cash cow. They see it as a good time that the audience can have every Christmas. But the show is supposed to make you feel more human, and it's supposed to make you feel uh, part of an activist movement to improve the lives of those around you, not just something you take the kids to see and then you go shopping for, for people you don't like to get them Christmas present crap that they don't want, you know? 
<laughs> activist theater. Right. That's what we do. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is totally what you do, activist theater, for sure. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, there will be, be no more shopping very- on... Oh, sorry. I was just thinking about no, no, you know, ahead, the day after Thanksgiving and how, um, you know, if if people, you know, um, uh, listen to this, this play, then, you know, they can really send a message economically to, to the nation by not shopping. Oh, if you had a buy nothing not promoting, Friday, which is important um, to have, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's you know perfect timing. I mean, it might it might be for next year because you know I don't know. Uh, is it available now? Can people listen now? Uh, yeah, I think it becomes available on Friday. And like everyone, oh, perfect. Yeah, you know, first for for a lot of people also they go mime troop. First of all, we have to explain that we don't do silent mime. We do <laughs> political musical comedies, and we do them free. So that people, so, so that the average working class person can afford to see it, and then they get even more confused when they go, "Wait a minute, it's Mime Troop on the radio." Then they have, then their minds are totally blown. They're like, "We don't even understand. Are we going to be listening to silence for an hour?" Uh, and it's like, "No, it's a play." <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, it's like a, you know, it's a play, a radio play. What a certain generation calls radio plays, and what another generation calls scripted podcasts. They're exactly the same thing, but for some reason, people go, ooh, radio plays are old. Scripted podcasts, that's new. Um, and they'll be able to listen to ri- uh, radio stations across the country. And, and also, if they go to the Mind Troops website at sfmt.org, they can just click on it there and listen to it. It'll be on, like, SoundCloud and iTunes and all of these things. Free to listen to an activist, uh, and, and we also have a lot of songs in it. Daniel Savio, who's our musical uh, director, organized and arranged all of this music for it using traditional labor songs. And it's really, it's, it's, it's about we as the workers reclaiming this activist story and not just letting the rich people tell us our story. Well said. And it's got, you know, comedy and music and all the traditional, you know, um, Mike McShane plays Scrooge. We're super glad to get you, Mike. That was, that was so wonderful. Um, you know, and it's got the Ghost of Christmas, Prowse and President Cratchit and all of those people. But it also has a message behind it. Yeah. Yeah, well, basically, <laughs> I think what, what we were trying to do is, I think, amplify the message that Dickens was was trying to put out when he you know, had the inspiration to write it. Not that I knew him personally, right? But, you know, just <laughs> understanding that he was a, you know, he he was a um, a social critic with his with his writing. And and so, you know, basically that that's what Michael has done is just really amp- amplify the original intent of of the story and um and then because you know the the original story has victorian england references that maybe people don't really know what those mean now um then then the explanations of what those those phrases and and terms like 
what is what what does he mean when he says bah humbug? Like that's something that we're used to hearing Scrooge saying bah humbug. But what is a humbug? You know, um, when he glibly says, oh well, they can just go to the workhouses. What is that? You know, so that's one of those things that that this piece does is really help clarify what these references are so that you really know what this man is saying, you know, um, and, and yeah, how, a con. Ah. So right. He says, we're going to do something nice for the poor. He says humbug, meaning no, you're not really going to do that. It's a con mm-hmm. job. Christmas mm-hmm. is a con, uh, you know. All your vir- your virtue con. signaling. You must make a pr- right. Uh, what'd you say, Mike? Yeah. They see, you know, that you get accused of virtue signaling. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, uh. yeah, like Lena said, the audience just doesn't know when they say, "Oh, isn't the treadmill working anymore? Oh, isn't mm-hmm. the workhouse?" We in this adaptation. I mean, so that the actors actually start talking to the audience to explain what each one of these things is, to give the audience the definition, mm. rather than it just That's being, great. like Selena said. That's really thing. great. Yeah. It, was, it was a rampant society in that time of even the prisons had levels of uh, luxury you could afford. The Marshall Sea Prison, uh, I used to work in a theater over in England there, the Marshall Sea Prison site where Dickens' father was put in where they had a work workhouse and a wheel and all that. And if you had money, you were at the front of the prison with windows and sunlight, and people brought you in hams and bottles of claret and cheeses, literally. You paid, you know, <laughs> like it, it's a prison for profit system. Very similar to <laughs> similar in some ways. Yeah. Uh, but you know what I'm saying? It's, it's, and then there's people who couldn't afford it, and they're way in the back. And they're the ones getting crushed by illness and being lost and things like that. I always like this, the idea of both three of us have participated in, in what was, the, like a, Michael said, a cash cow for ACT. No disrespect to it. We had a great time doing it. We met each other. But I know we, there's times I went, this is nice. I'm making people happy. And you can walk off yourself feeling really good. But all the time, it's always about the single act of Scrooge being redeemed, which I guess that, that was the strongest way to put it in print then. And what Michael and, uh, and, uh, has done is brought the people as the main part of the story instead of forgetting, you know, so they don't get turned into poverty porn holy, And nothing <laughs> happens. Mm-hmm. And you don't think about that, that, that character, the people as that character, putting their foot forward going, no, shut up, listen to me here. Listen. And that's what's important about this show. Ah, wow. Yeah, so, so Mike. I'll go back to my change. coffee now. Yeah, talk talk about, you know, being, you know, Scrooge, you know, we, we when we think about, you know, Christmas Carol, um, we think about Scrooge and his enlightenment. Um and and then uh Valina, uh you and, and Michael, um Jean Michael Jean, um, you all are are the the couple, you know, that have, have you know, the child, the children. And mm-hmm. you know, and that's that's a real um it's a real touching story. I'm thinking about it's a wonderful life. Um, presently in my mind, I see it's a wonderful life. Um, you know, the, uh, and Tiny Tim. But I was wondering if you could you could talk about you know your characters and how, in this particular iteration, how um, how you've changed them, how how they're different from what you know we've been we've been fed over the years. Because uh, I, I did see the uh, ACT production um, <laughs> uh, 
with Stephen Anthony Jones and uh yeah, yeah, and and others and you know, it's you know, you leave with lollipops and you skip out, right? You don't necessarily think <laughs> uh think about you know, the injustice and and how the system is is corrupt and needs to be changed. Which uh, is what first, we Mike? feel inspired to do when we go to something that SF Mime Troop has produced. Like, okay, where are the picket signs? You know, where are the petitions? You know, how do we strike? Um, you know, that's sort of like we we get inspired to change something when we when we uh, participate in one of your productions. We do not want to be silent. Anything else but silence. Yeah. Right. So, do you want to start, Mike? Sure. Me? Okay, cool. Yeah. Hi, guys. Uh, Let's see. Scrooge. Um, As the book writes him and and, and as as Michael's given it to to us, he's he's a closed-off, isolated guy who's um, happy with the system as it is because it does what it – it leaves him alone. It leaves him and his money and his isolation alone. He is a closed-off human being, and you can sometimes – I understand from having worked over there on some winters in London, you just got your shoulders up around your ears and the coat bumper and you don't want to know about anything else. And you get into that mood. I think he's uh, lost the ability to see how he affects people except because, except in exchange, everything's in a manner of exchange. So he gets his doors blown open by the three spirits seeing where actions have consequence and momentum. It gives gives him an ability to see that in front of everything he does. But all he can see, as we generally find, is he cries and redeems and gets off the hook. The momentum doesn't stop to say that is not as important. And that's where, again, this play changes, is to where he's talked as as a peer on the planet by by Bob Cratchit and the family. And so he has to take it instead of uh, getting off the hook. Um, mm. But it's, it's, I know myself, you know, I'm an older guy. I'm 66. Sometimes the world that I grew up in, and, and I've loved some of the changes, some I haven't. And I start to get really like, you know what? I thought, like, oh, don't receive. My dad lived to be 96. I don't have any chance mm. of doing that because I'm adopted. I have none of his genes. And I wasn't like an angry Irish man, so that kept him going for years. <laughs> but, it, you know, I saw him turn around and say how the length of life made him change a lot of his ideas about things. And I'm glad for that in him. And I realized that's a potential, but you have to be told sometimes. You have to be stopped. You have to see. And um, that's what this play does for him, but through a, through a larger voice and a more powerful front. There you go. Mm-hmm. Wow. Right. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and I think uh, as Mrs. Yeah, as Mrs. Cratchit, um, you know, the mother of several children and and uh, including Tiny Tim, it's like the I feel like she's a tricky role anyway, you know. And one of the things that was that was really interesting to see. Um, the first, I think it was the first time I did Christmas Carol uh, at at ACT, which was the Laird Williamson uh, version. Um, 
the uh, I'm trying to think of the other because he wrote it with somebody else, and I'm not thinking of the other Dennis gentleman. Dennis there it is. Powers. Yeah. So yeah. So the Williamson Powers version, which was really beautiful. I mean, I I actually really loved it, and it wasn't completely denuded of the the meaning that that um, Dickens had written in, and Michelle Moraine was the first Mrs. Cratchit, I think, that I saw in that production. And she already had, had you know, really taken the tack of not having um, Mrs. Cratchit be so perky, you know, and, and, and so sweet. You know, Michelle's uh, Mrs. Cratchit was really pissed off you know, that, that they were struggling so much, you know? And so, so that was, that was um, in there for that production, you know, but it was unique because the, we had um, been shown how basically happy the poor people were, you know, um, and that, that they, that they really were fine with their lot in life and weren't, concerned about injustice and this particular so red carol really um you know continues in along the the lines of what what michelle did uh for uh mrs mrs cratchit and so it sort of she's sort of like um look you're overworked you're underpaid oh, it's Belina, not I don't fair hear you anymore oh oh you can't you can't hear valina you, Oh, oh! Can you you can't hear me? Oh, oh! Now I can. Oh, okay. So it's like you're overworked, you're underpaid. It's not fair. He's taking advantage of you. We've got all these kids, and you're you're working so hard. You you should be making enough money to to adequately take care of the kids and make sure that Tiny Tim can get the health care he needs and all of that sort of thing. And so you know, to really have a more realistic take on, on how a mother uh, would feel in the, in those, you know, under those circumstances. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so that was really, uh, you know, fun and interesting to find that line. It's like, she's, she's, she's not like this, um, you know, she's not this horrible person to be around, you know, <laughs> but, uh, but, but you get her point of of there should be more resources for them because they're not lazy and they are working and they still don't have enough. And um, you know, so that, I feel like that was kind of like the main the main difference um, between most uh, of versions of Christmas carols that people might see is that, you know, Mrs. Cratchit, you know, ha- really um, is more, I feel like in some ways is more relatable in terms of, you know, her circumstances. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like the perfect play during, a, you know, um, a pandemic world. Uh, like to <laughs> sort of re- rethink this, it's just, it's just seems to be the play. <laughs> Well, one of the things also, uh, touching on what Selena said, that I really wanted to do in this adaptation, like she was saying, there are productions where, you know, Mrs. Crackett uh, can be angry or, or 
or, or you know, more focused on what's going on and how her husband and the workers aren't being uh, adequately paid. But also what I did in this production is to put it in context so that if we're talking about how somebody's not being paid enough, it, this play kind of stops, and then we talk directly to the audience about capitalism, you know, about mm-hmm. what it means, about the scene. Everybody's always so happy when they see Christmas Carol, and all the little children come to the table, and, you know, that one scene where the Cratchit family comes to the table, and the kids are happy, and they, oh, a goose, a goose, and we've got a goose, and we've got a, a Christmas pudding. And, it was like, and the audience is like, isn't this pleasant? The fact is, a goose is a cheap stringy, fatty little bird as opposed to a turkey. And a Christmas pudding is just a lump of boiled dough with maybe some meat in it or maybe some fruit or maybe not. With everything they say, a Dickensian audience would have read Christmas Carol and known that this is a cheap meal they're having. And when they say, oh, and we're having punch, they always put that in the play. The kids, everybody's going to have some punch. And, and the audience is like, oh, isn't that nice? For a Dickensian audience would know, punch is gin. What the kids are mm. drinking is hot gin with maybe wow. some lemon in it. Oh. Because milk was for the rich people, and water in those days would kill you. Because they hadn't figured oh. out uh, the uh, you know, germ theory yet. And, and England specifically had huge outbreaks of typhus and cholera because the water was so dirty. They're giving the kids hot gin. So what I do in this adaptation is I tell the audience that, to say this scene that you see in Christmas Carol every year that it's supposed to be so heartwarming is actually quite sad and quite – this is about working-class oppression. And the reason the kids are so happy is it's the one time in the year where they may not leave the dinner table still hungry. Hmm. So to say, to always have whatever's happening to the characters and go, okay, this is a moment where in Christmas Carol you normally feel relief. This isn't where you should feel relief. This is actually an example of acceptable poverty acceptable hunger, acceptable uh, uh, disempowerment of the working class. And if we see it as a story of class, it is very much about uh, a demand for the society to empower the workers, to treat them as human beings, and for them to treat themselves and for them to expect and demand more. But like I said, and and like uh, Valina and Mike said, the story has been so homogenized, it's been so tamed, it's been so gelded that it, that it ends up being just a good time. When we did Christmas Carol, the first time I did it at ACT, uh, they would do – large theaters do a thing called Equity Fights AIDS, where after the show, the actors will come out yes. and, and mm-hmm. solicit donations from the crowd to help, especially when the AIDS crisis was very much uh, uh, you know, at its height. But theaters still do it, and it's a wonderful program. And so after Christmas Carol, I played the uh, Ghost of Christmas Past. And I would come out to the lobby, and I'd be out there with a little bucket soliciting donations for people. And, uh, and uh, uh, I, uh, this one person came up, and she, she was just horrified that, I was, that we were asking for money. She said, how could you ask for money for suffering people after a show like Christmas Carol? And I was like, did you see the show? 
What? That's exactly what Christmas Carol is about. And and they she, she the way that audience saw the show was it was all supposed to be about just having a good time. And in addition to that, we had uh, I also would tell people in seeing Christmas Carol. Hold on, I just want to pick this up and hang up on that person. Um, that the uh, idea of oh, oh, I would come out and I would say. If you can't give money to us, please remember that there are people who live on the stairs of this theater and yeah. consider giving money to them. Yeah. Because that's what the show's supposed to be about. But I could see in the audience's eyes that that's not why they came to see Christmas Carol. They come to see it as a bland tradition, as opposed to what Dickens intended, which is a, a, a happy and, and very entertaining Hammer to change the world. So yeah, you know. So in my in my adaptation, there's a stage version and a radio version. In the stage version, the whole play is done as like kind of like a, a a roadside homeless encampment, where these people who are who live at this encampment are doing a Christmas carol for this audience to te- to change their minds about things. In the radio version, it's very much Cratchit is the narrator. So Bob Cratchit is telling the story to the audience to try to get them to understand uh, what the real meaning of charity, benevolence, fellow humanity, you know, and, and uh, empowerment of the, the common worker is about. And he's trying to, and he's using Scrooge in a way as an example of a mindset. Scrooge isn't supposed to be an individual. Scrooge is an example of a philosophy of selfishness, mm. of yeah. like Ayn Randian, you know, uh, libertarianism, the kind of I got mine, you get yours. Scrooge is supposed to serve as an example, and too many adaptations make the play just about him. And so, again, in traditional fun mind trip style, we <laughs> try to make it so that the audience always sees how they are culpable, how they tacitly are, are part of the problem when they accept these attitudes around. You know, people will see a Christmas carol and then step over the homeless that are outside, you know, without thinking about it. And they've been allowed to do that by adaptations that take all the politics out of it. And so we just – and people say, oh, you've done this adaptation. It's so different. And I'm like, this adaptation is closer to what Dickens wrote than the other ones, in my opinion. Ah, that's that's really yeah, I'm really, really looking forward to it. Um I would so agree with, that. with that in mind, is is this for children? Is this for family listening? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well what I started to say, um, is that the play, I mean, the thing is, if you're not familiar with the mime troupe, then you may, you may feel like, oh, my gosh, I don't know if I want to, this sounds so, so harsh and, and intense that, you know, that the holidays are already hard enough, you know, for some people, the holidays are a really rough time. And it's like, so do I really want to see something that's just going to make me so depressed and make me want to slip my wrist? You know, I don't think I can, can deal. <laughs> You know, but um, 
actually, if you're not familiar with the troop, the thing that, that we do and something that Michael, Michael Sullivan is so um, masterful at is being able to deal with really uh, very serious subjects but, and, and, and really weaving the information in with humor. So um, the pieces are really funny at, at the same time as you're, you're getting, um, you know, the, the real, the real, uh, the real information, you know? And so, so it's, it's actually is fun and definitely, um, uh, I think a great piece for, for kids to see as well. Um, but, you know, it's just going to give you, it's just seeing it from, rather than from the upper class view, you're seeing it from the working class view. But yeah, definitely it's, I think, I think if you're, you know, maybe at least six or something, I think you would enjoy it. Yeah, and it's got all of the the ghosts and the fun and all of that stuff and the sound (laughs) effects. Our our sound designer, Taylor Gonzalez, did a wonderful job of adding all of these because it also, Christmas Carol is a ghost story. People mm. forget that that's the title is. It's like Christmas Carol. It's a Christmas ghost story. Um, uh, Dickens wrote it. It was supposed to like, it was kind of like a scared straight thing. It was like, this is <laughs> what you guys are. And if you don't change the society, we're going to have a revolution right now. Um, and so, yeah, so it's, Oh, last year, when we want this to be a Christmas tradition. We want this to be one of those things that people listen to every year to kind of reinvigorate themselves at the end of the year, to understand that there's hope for change and that they can be a part of that, and for it to be entertaining and everything, that their whole family is kind of gathering around and listening to this story. And hopefully at some point, the Mind Troop will actually have the money to produce it, and we'll put it up every year, and it'll be a, a counter to all of the corporate versions. It's a great tradition you're carrying in line with. When you think back even before, like you said, it was a ghost story, Michael, and that that was the tradition in British uh, Christmas traditions before he coined it and put the story in Christmas itself. Um, They would often be about in local areas like in the north in Yorkshire. They had their own ghost stories about the ghosts there and would tell those in the dark, in those cold places, and get you into the morning and then hence whatever comes from that thing. Then Dickens grabbed it and did it as we've done it. You and all three of us have done it. And then you guys have taken it an extra measure with your writing with the, and with a mime troops tradition. You do, it's, it is a traditional mime troops show. But like you, you guys were saying, you can bring kids to this because it was always – and listen, if you miss one of Michael Sullivan, Gene Sullivan's jokes, you were looking at your feet. He sends them out. <laughs> like with a volley and you know when they're coming and they're good and they're funny and if that sort of like slightly begins in then very modern you know regular back-to-back speak and then back into it a little so it it has all those great elements of american satire bullwinkle which i think still is good political satire i still think it was yeah. um mm-hmm. and he was able to oh, tell yeah. a joke and get you know he couldn't get too serious but talk about serious things with humor and, and lay the ground for looking at it in a different direction. So you guys have carried on a natural tradition, and that's a great thing, I think. Mm, yeah, certainly, certainly. Yeah, yeah. So looking forward to um, 
making this a part of uh of my uh tradition, my family's tradition. Right um yeah, yeah, cool. yeah. Thank you so much for the work. How many years is it now, San Francisco Mime Troop? Sixty <sighs> two I think. Really? Sixty two? Oh my yeah. goodness. Wow. Yeah, it yeah. started wow. in nineteen fifty nine, so maybe. Mm. Okay. Yeah. yeah, and and for for you all, which anniversary is this for you um, with regards to um, part of being a part of the collective? Oh goodness, I think I'm at thirty two years mm. with the company. Okay. Yeah, wow, something like that. Thirty two years, okay. Yeah. Yeah, and Um, I I think I joined in ninety. Eight or ninety nine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, but your first show 20, was like ninety. My first. Well, she. Yeah, you came Wanda into, was asking like about the collective. Yeah, I yeah. first oh, started no, no, working no. with the troop in ninety two, yeah. but I didn't join okay. the collective right, right away. Mm. Oh well, just just your contact is fine, so you can go back to ninety two. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> and this was my first time being invited to to be with the troop. For real? Yes. I saw him in 1975. I used to come to San Francisco from Stockton when I was still in the service. Mm. And, and go. Yeah. I saw Shabaka play Fat Wino, which that's kind of hooked Wow. Me. Wow. Yeah. I still got a Spain poster. <laughs> I still got that Spain poster. I want to sign. I want to work with it someday. Go, dude, will you sign this? <laughs> Very cool. Oh, shit. <laughs> I should tell him. I got to give him a call anyway. I should tell him, you know, Michael Chain's down there. You should go sign his poster. Yeah, Yeah. he's out on the street right now. Yeah, right. He's outside. (laughs) Please don't call the cops. Please, please. (laughs) So, so how did you um, how did you learn of the mime shoes? You had to travel all the way from Stockton. Like you, you like it was a destination for you. Well, you'll do anything to get out of Stockton, frankly, at times. And um, <laughs> um, the valley's tough. It's a tough place, man. It really is. And I, I was I was, sta- I was stationed out there in the last part of being in the, in the Army. And I, San Francisco oh. always, obviously, was a paradise. I'm from Kansas. Mm-hmm. So it was, you know, always in my mind, it's a fantastic, free, open, uh, spiritual and guttural and you know it's a fantastic still has maybe those elements but there but when I was there it was great to go and and there was free theater in the park and that was great too and so I took my weekends and and played at being a San Franciscan and then I ended up becoming one for 10 years when I got out (laughs) Uh, yeah Yeah, what a nice story we would have worked with him before but you know, in all of these years, but he was off doing like movies and television shows in England, and you know, he's done yeah. all over the place. Michael played with me and Greg Proofs, and Greg and I got cast in a British TV show, in, in, improvisation show. We worked over there, and we've all, con- both he and I, continued to work over there. But we were all on stage together, um, so I'm always lucky. I mean, I came to San Francisco as an actor for me at an ideal time, and I learned my craft from guys like Michael. And Felina, and Brian Loman, and Greg, and the teachers, and the people on the shows. Uh, I never mm-hmm. went to an acting school. 
I mean, mm-hmm. I'd show up looking like I did. I look like Avery Schreiber, you know, and, and not in a good way. And um, <laughs> like, what? but San Francisco would go, okay, that's good because look, look who's there. And you'd go, oh, he's all right. Because I knew if I went to L.A., no, nothing would happen. I couldn't see myself anywhere. <laughs> so I was lucky. I took, I took the best way out of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, we worked together on on – a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. The forum. Did we do Marco mm. Millions together? No. You were out by that point? No. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, Mike and I did a weird uh, one. the San Francisco Shakespeare Festival a few yes. shows together and yes. and uh, Berkeley Shakes before it became Cal Shakes. And mm-hmm. Mike was also in a uh, 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 comedy troupe, uh, improv troupe, uh, Fault Line. Hmm. Which kind of eventually evolved into Bay Area theater sports. Exactly, but, you know, because it was, yeah, it was that time that the the author of that book, Keith Johnstone, introduced him called improv because there hadn't been another way or school of thought about improvisation yet, other than Chicago, which is fine. But this guy from the UK, which had things of status and class and being very ordinary and finding something unusual, that landed when I decided to join up with Greg Proops, Brian Loman, Sandy. Altaus, Kathy Arcoli, and Reed Rollman, all San Franciscans, we started that group. Simultaneously, I was working with Alina and Michael. It was a great, it's still, it's like to me, it reminded me of London. It's like you do some stage, you do some TV, you do some film. Everybody, nobody was pigeonholed very much. You know, everybody's wandering around finding something that suited them or got the rent paid. And it was, um, mm. you know, it's a night for me, I, I idealize it, but that's what, I'm an old man here with a cat. So that's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Aren't we all on some level deep inside an old man with a cat? <laughs> yeah, and it was also, uh, we are all uh, went to San Francisco State. And so no. there was a lot of you did. overlap. With oh. the par- yeah. yeah. And the department, wow. was, uh, the whole, I mean, the school, it, there, was, there were so many people that came out of it at that time uh, mm-hmm. that, you know, went on to make, a big impact in different places and, and doing stuff that very creative stuff, just a, you know, um, a really wonderful sense of possibility in, in San Francisco at that point in the, you know, right in the eighties uh, and into the nineties, so many little theater companies, like Mike said, there were so many places that are gone now, you know, the one act theater, the uh, fair flag theater, hate Ashbury rep, the gumption theater, all of these, little companies where you could work in all these places and actually make enough money to live. Yep. You could cobble uh, it together. Was, yeah. 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 Now it's, it's significantly harder. It's more expensive to live here. And a lot of those smaller companies are just gone. Most of them are gone. Um, but there's still, you know, still some of us you, out there. There's you guys. Along. Yeah. And there's you guys. My troops managed I mean, to uh, keep going and paying its folks and creating work and bringing in new actors all of the time to keep telling the stories that are so important about, you know, about uh, what other theater you're going to see something where somebody's actually going to say the word capitalism, you know, to actually yeah. blame fascism, to, to explain what does it mean for the working class in general to, to unite and what power it should have. You know, most mm-hmm. of the time, most of the plays you see are psychodramas. It's somebody talking about, ah, I always hated my mom. That's why I don't wear shoes, you know. And <laughs> you want to have something that, that, that really tells you, no, it's not, it's not this man in his shoes. 
you know, him and his mother were under pressure from the capitalist boss who was, you know, the racist, sexist, oppressive capitalist that separated him from his mom, and he had somehow personalized that into shoes. We can at least contextualize it in such a way that hopefully activates the audience so that they demand change of the society and of themselves. And comedy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking about how how um, polarized the country is, and um, and just and and that polarization it is born of desperation. People are people are having a hard time. You know, most people are are having a hard time, and they're 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 scared. They're angry. They don't know what to do. And, and then people who are, are trying to just continue to consolidate more and more power are using people's fear to, to take more power, to tell you, oh, you know what your problem is? Okay, so it's not me. I, it's not my ilk that has been shutting down the, the factories and throwing you out of work and you know, making it so, and, and like a big pharma really capitalizing on people's misery by selling things, the opioids that they know are so addictive, you know, so now you have like big swaths of places where you've got rust belt, but it's also opioid belt, you know, and, and then having all of these things that people struggling it with have, you know, healthcare, issues, people getting thrown off of their health care uh, right at a time when there's like a pandemic, you know, like all of these things and climate change and ah, you know, like there's so much stuff to be um, frightened by and, and feel overwhelmed by. And, and instead of the 99%, maybe turning to the people who are in positions of power that can can start to turn the the Titanic away from the the iceberg. You know, it's like no, all of your problems, the th- your healthcare concerns, your your uh, your family addicted to opioids, your all of these different things. It's like you know what your problem is, Mexicans. Yeah. You know, yeah. and it's like yeah. what you know, but because because people are already so scared and freaked out that these kinds of lizard people, um, you know, whatever. It's like these things can make sense to to a a frightened brain. You know, when you're scared, you're not thinking straight. And then someone who can come in and say, "Here's here's what your misery is caused by, and I'm the person, I'm here to build a wall and make sure those Mexicans can't, you know. And it's like it makes, there's no thread it doesn't make sense but it keeps most people uh so distracted that they're not really focusing on who really is causing all of this misery you know um who really is is you know hoovering up all the you know all of all of the 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 money that the workers are generating are we do have a productive workforce a very productive workforce but they don't get to realize the profits from all their hard work. 
and they don't know, it, it doesn't make sense. It's not fair. They don't know why. And they get told it's, you know, it's, it's trans people, you know, wanting um, genderless bathrooms or Mexicans or, you know, critical race black theory people. or yeah, critical race theory. That's what's going to ruin everything. And it's like, critical race theory isn't even taught in in k through 12 it's 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 a it's a law school class yeah and it's you just know, history it's just yeah and it's history the truth it's just history yeah yeah it's not going to kill but you that, <laughs> yeah right but for some people for people who have been convinced that uh, see, the thing is, there's a certain uh, quality that the mind trick is always trying to break for the audience, which is that everything right now is basically fine. And that idea of, of everything is right now, things are basically fine, and we need a certain amount of stability, is absolutely true if you're really, really rich. And that has always ah. been the case. The super wealthy, in our situation, the capitalists, or before that, the mercantilists, or the royalists, the aristocracy, they're at the top. And so because they are comfortable, they want nothing to change. They want stasis. They want the society to stay that way because it works for them. And so that's why they lie to us. They control the means of media. They control the information, and they try to convince us that either right now is perfect or just yesterday was perfect. Maybe a little nostalgia thrown in. If things aren't working for you, it's because things should be the way they used to be when they were also in power. But anti-progressive at all costs. Don't change anything for the future. And that's how we end up in this horrible climate situation that we're, that we're damning our children to. How we end up with, oh, goodness, there are all of these extra homeless people. What should we do about them? You know? The idea that, oh, the, the working class is struggling, so we need more police to make sure that the workers, their strikes are broken and that they're you know, chased through the street for being anti-fascist. The, problem, the problems are much more fundamental. And if we could address those, and as Valina said, if we have a society with people struggling financially, maybe we need fewer billionaires, you know? Fewer Imagine that. We're, we are taught, <laughs> yeah, we're taught as Americans to worship these people and see them as heroes. The, every dollar Elon Musk has is a dollar that he didn't pay the workers. They deserved all that money. They deserved that. We as a society, we'd be better off with a lot of people making $50,000 a year rather than a couple people making billions and everybody else making twenty. You know, We need to and, – and, and, all this wealth that the country has, as, again, as Valina said, was generated by the workers. Elon Musk didn't even invent Tesla. He bought that company. Mm. He, and, he, and in his contract when he bought it was, an, was a, an agreement that said that he got to say he was the founder. He wasn't even the founder. Mm. He's just a billionaire con man who makes who has generated his own wealth by underpaying his workers, by breaking unions, and by overcharging for batteries. You know? He's not Tony Stark. He's not Iron Man, who himself, in the books, is actually a billionaire arms dealer. Uh, you know, we have to stop worshiping wealth because the wealthy are the ones that are separating us. The wealthy are the ones that make sure to keep the working class divided. 
And so, so that's always been the Mime Troops message. But we use comedy and music and dance and all of these different things to kind of, as the as Valina always says, as the delivery system for these truths. Because first of all, if you show everybody just how much they're oppressed, how much they're divided, how difficult things are, if you remind them of all of that stuff without the comedy, they'll just kill themselves. And then you don't get any repeat visitors, <laughs> no repeat audience members. You don't have word of mouth, you know, yeah, and yeah. it's a much bigger mess to clean up after the show. The it's cast better. are a drag. Oh, yeah. Man, it's like, oh, God. Nobody shows it's like up. The Strindberg, uh, it's like the Strindberg <laughs> Festival. So, you know, nobody knows. Yeah, about it. right. <laughs> um, So you have to find a way to be able to use what happens in everyday life, which is that people do use humor and love and compassion to, to make it through uh, the difficulties that they have. And we are just amplifying that love, comedy, and compassion that they use to, to another level of how can we use these things together to have some kind of perspective over the difficulties and know what the font of our difficulties is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, do you all want to talk about um, the other members of the cast um, in, in our closing uh, minutes? <laughs> well, we have, uh, you know, we've got a, uh, a really wonderful cast. One of the really nice things about having, about doing this as an audio production was that we could have people from across the country all in the same production. Like Mike is in Los Angeles. He didn't come up here for it. He, he recorded oh. his section in Los Angeles. Um, uh, Lisa Hori Garcia, uh, another mind troop actor, she was in Denver when she did her part. We had some of the musicians were in New York. Uh, we had people from all over California, but really all over the United States. Um, Almost Glick, who is also a, a, an ex-Mind Troop member, and he's in Los Angeles. He played a part. Uh, Wilma Bonet, who is a, a wonderful Mind Troop uh, ex-Mind Troop performer. You know, she's like, yeah, woo. And she was like, she did a voice in Coco. She's done all of these great, all this great work, and she was in it, um, playing uh, the Ghost of Christmas. Which one? She played Present. 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 And uh, Keiko Shimasato Carrero, who played the Ghost of um, not Mind Troop veteran, but also just she's working all over the place right now. Uh, and she did the Ghost of Christmas Pass. And uh, Jerry and Monroe, who is a, you know, a uh, major Bay Area actor and has done television and film. He's got a memoir coming out. Uh, and oh, he had done slacker. Tales of the slacker. Resistance. With, hmm? What a slacker. Yeah, really. <laughs> Good life. Uh, he, uh, he had done Tales of the Resistance, which is a, a Mind Troop series that we did for the last two years over the summer. Since we couldn't do our summer shows because of the pandemic, our outdoor shows. So we did these two series. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did that, and he came in and played, uh, uh, and played Jacob Marley for us. And so we have all of these wonderful actors and singers, uh, uh, Andre Amaratico uh, is in the show. Um, people that are Mind Troop veterans, but like I said, also uh, newcomers and people. When I wrote the role of Scrooge, Mike McShane was who I had in mind. Oh. You know, and 
And so I was writing it because I, I wrote the script, the original stage production. I wrote it like a decade ago. Um, oh. And very depressingly for me, I've never been able to talk a theater into doing it because a lot of the progressive theaters, the theaters that are out there for the working class, the theaters that are going to tell the man where to go, they don't want to do no. Christmas Carol because in their mind, Christmas Carol is an old-fashioned, not activist show because they've only seen the big productions. They've only seen the, the you know, Bill Murray Scrooged, a great film, but that's what they're used mm-hmm. to. They're not used mm-hmm. to seeing the working class version. So I can't get them interested. Uh, so I had the script in my uh, you know, the stage version all this time, but I always pictured Mike as Scrooge. Uh, a part of it's because I'd seen him, you know, play Dickens in the ACT version, but also just I know him. And he's, I, I, when I write things, I always think of particular actors in particular parts. When I wrote my stage adaptation of uh, the novel 1984, I pictured Mike in a particular role. And so I wrote it, like, with his voice. He hasn't played the part yet, but... Not um, yet. <laughs> not yet, but for this... For, for this one, I thought of him, and uh, when we were coming around to doing the radio version, uh, I was like, man, who are we going to cast? And Zelina said, well, who would you want to cast? Who would be perfect for this part? And I went, oh, that would be Mike McShane. And, and then I just out of the blue texted him and just said, just out of curiosity, because he's a super busy actor, you know, jetting over, do, just doing all of this stuff. And so said, just out of curiosity, would you be interested in doing this? And he snapped at it. I was like, yes. He was like, absolutely. Yes. And I was like, that is so I was cool. having a manicure in Paris. And an espresso. And <laughs> suddenly it came through. My private secretary said to me, would you care doing this little doddle here in San Francisco for a, a mean troupe? I said, well, why not? <laughs> My credentials got impeccable. No, this comes from, I'm playing awful men. He, when he thinks of me, he thinks of awful men. This comes from him having to see me backstage when we were younger actors together. <laughs> It, it shocked him. I'm sorry. Well, no, I, I, like with, with 1984, yes, he was going to – I, I thought of him uh, as uh, O'Brien, who is an awful person. But yeah. I, mm-hmm. I always felt like what people do when they play or when they, when they write or create awful characters, by demonizing them so much, it relieves the audience of having to see how that person is also them. Hmm. Whereas one of the things that Mike does so well is to humanize person, to make that person more like the audience and less like this cardboard cutout that we can just hate at a distance. He's one of them. And no matter how terrible that person is, they are still a human being. And, if you, and the goal of theater, what I always say is the goal of theater should be to change the audience. That's the purpose. If you can change only one person in the audience, you have failed miserably. Because <laughs> it's going to take a lot more than that. You know? Do you want the audience to Ryan stand up Stiles. and go... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, no, Ryan Stiles has a quote. He goes, because he does comedy, he goes, if I can make one person laugh, then I'm doing a pretty shitty job. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Right. You want to be able to go, you, I want the audience to stand up and go, this stuff is really messed up. I had a great yep. time. Now let's go out and overthrow capitalism. And in order to do that, you have to make sure that the audience feels challenged by the piece, that they see themselves as part of the problem. Some part of them is part of the problem. 
And so that means your villain or the person who needs to be changed in the play has to be represent in part the audience. And so Mike, while he's a, a you know a wonderful hero also and a great just a comedic actor and a dramatic actor, but that he can humanize these characters is why he keeps occurring to me when I'm writing stuff. It's nice, and thank you, Michael. It's nice to know that you and Helena, and for me, it's a great comfort to, to come into this world, which I experienced, and I've seen you guys work with. Yeah, it's all, thank you. You make the job, not easy, but it's, it's clear what needs to be done when you write, and comically too. And so there's, there's no, nothing hidden. And you're just doing that, that job that I learned in San Francisco. So I owe it to you guys. I really do, man. Always do. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> well, great Thanks. to have a chance to work with you again, and hopefully it won't be the last time. I just want to yeah. come in, and I want to go back up there and hang out and bother people for a bit. Stay <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. in the panhandle and ruin somebody's afternoon. Um <laughs> No, go ahead. You were going to say something. No, I'm just I'm just ripping now. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I've, I've got a few um, I've got a few of your promos. I don't have the promo promo um, uh, queued up because I couldn't upload it. But I do have you, uh, Valina, um, in the the red flag that I could play, and then red I've got Carol. a couple of others. Is it the red Carol? Okay, because I thought yeah. that's what the sign, that's what the uh, the clip said. That's what the song is. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, the yeah. I know it's the red Carol. Um, that's the yeah. name of the play, and people can go to um, uh, SFMT for SF San Francisco Mime Troop dot org to make sure that they do not miss um, the opening uh, broadcast. Uh, is it? Do people listen online, or do they actually have a radio dial that they can tune into? Like either way, like I said, they can they can listen online. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, once the show is available, it'll be available, and pe- people can set their own schedule and listen to it whenever they want to, or on SoundCloud, mm-hmm. or on you know iTunes Music, or they can, like I said, radio stations around the country, and we're still actually. Uh, looking for other radio stations who want to play it because it's free. Oh. Again, the radio station just has a just has to be activists and want to stick another hour mm. of something uh, on their on their uh, schedule. Uh, oh, but so they I can will play be it? Able to, yeah. As far oh, as I know, okay. you can play it. Um, sure, that, okay. Trying to find places, like I said, because our goal is always the broadest possible audience for our message. And mm-hmm. and like I said, at a price that we want to make sure is uh, free for folks so that they can afford. So yeah, you should contact mm-hmm. us. I can put you in touch so we can figure out how to do the the logistics of it. Okay. But yeah, sure. Okay, mm. all that's right. Great idea. Do. Okay. Oh, that'd be super. Oh, that'd be heck awesome. All righty. So again, thank you all so much. It's been really wonderful um, speaking to the three of you. Um, yeah, this uh, this morning, Valina Brown, Michael Jean Sullivan, and Mike McShane. Um, yeah, it was just really wonderful hearing about your your connections. And so we're gonna 
let Valina um, take it off, you know, with this wonderful song, and then I'm going to play some of the other ones that I uploaded. <laughs> Thanks so much of, for having like, us, teasers. Wanda. Oh, Thank you, you're quite welcome. It's always Wanda. a pleasure. <laughs> good talking to you, too. Right <laughs> you all take good care. Bye. Christmas tree, you stand serene, in winter shroud your evergreen, the worker's flag, though its deepest red, it shrouded oft our martyred dead, so raise the sky. Unity, our path is clear. We'll keep the red flag flying Let's see another Christmas. You know this place? Know it? I was... I worked here for years. My first job, working for old Ebenezer. Ebenezer, where are you? Sissy wig. Yo, ho, Ebenezer. No more work tonight. Hurry, hurry. We have to close the desk, shutter up the windows, sweep the floor, and clear space. Space? For what? For what? For what? For dancing, Ebenezer. It's Christmas Eve. Now everyone dance. Live off somebody else's? Used to be, they knew ain't for two classes. Us that work in the factories, fields, and offices, and them that owns those factories, fields, and offices. And the sooner us workers are proud to be us and stop trying to be them, the sooner we get together, that's when we'll get and keep what we've been working for! that mm-hmm. are workers' tunes and revolutionary songs and put them into 
a Christmas carol because that's what the workers would have been singing about. And and songs like the one that you heard Felina sing, um, which mm. is based on O Tannenbaum, the original version of it was actually the one she sings. It really wasn't about Christmas. It was about the workers, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. And so, and it's about what we have to do and how we have to strive. So we kind of took the original version and the Christmas version and blended them together. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so it was a lot of fun to put together. Yeah, and then and I was just thinking, you know, the whole idea of you know these Christmas stories, and 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 the Christmas story is a story of story of homelessness. Um, you know, yeah. So it's kind of it all kind of fits together pretty neatly. Um, you know, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And all of that stuff mm-hmm. that people have forgotten when they say, you know, uh, uh, what does this message mean? And and it's not that Christmas Carol is an overly religious story. It really isn't. But even mm-hmm. if you think about the religious part of it, the the message of you know we're all human beings has been so much so lost with Christmas and it's just become about presents. It's become mm-hmm. about commerce. It's become about purchasing things for people. And, and uh, around the rest of the world, Christmas isn't about that. It's about getting together with your family. If you're, you know, if you're a Christian, and even if you're not a Christian and you're someone who celebrates it because it's an end-of-the-year solstice, Yule, whatever, it's mm-hmm. about getting together with your family and seeing your fellow human beings as human beings, you know. So I go downtown true. in San Francisco, and I always bring a lot of oh, money with me, cash, so that I'll have money to give to people who are mm-hmm. uh, less fortunate than I am. And, you know, living on the street, I want to make sure I have cash to hand out. Right. Uh, yeah. And at this time of the year, that part should be part of it, and not just to give them money, but also to find ways in our society to make it so that, so that these people are taken care of, all doing better. Mhm. Yes, that is important that we are all doing better. Mhm. Yes, yes. And um since you're still here, uh you didn't mention um the young person who is um a part of the cast and the ensemble. Yeah. Who is he? Yeah. We do have a tiny Tim. Oh, let wait a minute. I I don't have his name on the tip of my tongue, unfortunately. Oh, I uh, do. Um, his name is Milo Carter Daniels. Yeah, right, Milo Carter right. Daniels. He's Elizabeth Carter, wonderful actor-director Elizabeth Carter's son, Milo. Oh, my yeah. goodness. Really? That's her son? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I remember when he wasn't old enough to be in a play. Wow. <laughs> He's just barely old enough now. But we were looking around for someone, and, and uh, Milo had done a little piece also for uh, Tales of the Resistance. We needed a little kid's voice in one of the oh. scenes. Uh, and so, and then when it came around to Christmas, I was like, because the stage version of, of my adaptation doesn't have a Tiny Tim. It's a much sad. The stage version is sadder. The stage version, Tiny Tim has passed away. And it's, and, oh. and it's all uh, a memory of the story that, that, uh, that Cratchit is telling. He's telling it because the it's it's very meta. The character, the actor who's playing Cratchit, has had a son who's passed away. So, uh, but in this version, I wanted to put Tiny Tim back in. And so, when we were trying to find someone, and Elizabeth was because she had worked with us also. She was like, "My son can do it." And we're like, "That's <laughs> wonderful." So, and he nice. does a great job. 
Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah, the youngest member of the collective, maybe, in the future. Yeah, really. <laughs> oh, those are some long oh, meetings so cool. for a kid, but he can take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> We're cool. Well, congratulations again on, on this wonderful production, and I'm really happy after having written it so long ago that it is seeing the light in a couple of iterations, um, you know, um, and this one here is so accessible to everyone, uh, wherever you happen to be, and you don't even have to be here in the United States. Yep. Uh, what, a, what a wonderful way to to leave, um, you know, 2021 and enter into uh, 2022 since the run is so long, you know, um, November yeah. 26th uh, through January 9th. So, you know, there's... Um, you know, there's people can can listen and then listen again and share and you yeah. know reflect and go listen again. Yeah, that's what happened. <laughs> last year we had some people who listened to the show when it first opened in the middle of December last year, and then mm-hmm. they organized listening parties. Nice. Where they would get a bunch of people. I mean, like virtual listening parties because everyone was still in yeah. their homes, but they would all mm-hmm. listen to it at the same time, and mm-hmm. then discuss the show afterwards. Kind of have a you know, a virtual party with each other to talk about the issues in the show and just to have, you know, a Christmas get-together, only in that situation it was all through Zoom. Mm-hmm. But there are other groups this year that we, we're encouraging people. It's like, listen to it early, and then if you like it, tell your friends, and it's something that you guys can do together. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, and listen to it and talk about it. Great idea. Great idea. Yeah, yeah. Well, you take good care, both of you. Okay. And, uh, yeah, look forward to... Um, uh, seeing you in the theater, um, you know, in this in this iteration, and uh, and thank you so much for for your creative work. Really, really, really lightens my heart and makes, um, you know, what's going on presently, uh, you know, with the pandemic and uh, politically and socially in our nation and in the world a lot easier to bear. Oh, thank you. Uh, thank you for thanks, being there and. You know, being a voice for and amplifying the work. Yeah, theater in general, black theater specifically. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) All right. You take good care. Peace and blessings. Bye. You too. Bye bye. Bye.